Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview New York Times bestselling author Jonathan Ige. His latest book, King, A Life, examines the life and times of the iconic Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. This biography was published by Farrah, Strauss, and Garot in May of this year. And Jonathan Ige was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Kevin. There are other biographies of Martin Luther King, but there hasn't been one in a while. What do you feel this biography brings? What do you think is different about this biography? Wow, that's a that's a big question. Uh, where to start? Um, you know, first of all, it had been 35 years since the last King biography when I began my work, and and I'm not including the Taylor Branch trilogy and the David Garrow book uh, because I don't think of those as, as strictly being a biography. I think they're bigger and broader, and that's a long time to go for somebody as important and as relevant in our world today. And uh, as you know, biography exists on several different. Planes. It exists in the time you're writing about and the time you're writing and the time you're reading. So we live in a very different world today than we did in 1982 when the Stephen Oates book came out, Let the Trumpet Sound. And King speaks to us in a different way. And also at the same time, his story um, in those 40 years has been really watered down in part because of the national holiday, we've begun to teach him in a very simplified way, and we've lost sight of his humanity. We've treated him as a monument and a national holiday and a postage stamp, and we've lost sight of the man. So I thought it was important to write a new book, not just uh, because so much time had gone by, but because we've also really lost sight of him as a man, as a human being in many ways. Was there new information that you had that previous biographers did not have? Oh, there was so much new information. I was shocked at how much new information I discovered. And first of all, when I began, I didn't know how much new information there might be, but I also knew that there were still dozens, maybe scores of people alive who knew him and knew him well, and that I needed to run around and interview them as fast as I could. That was my number one priority. And I found some wonderful interviews with people who had not really been interviewed before, as well as you know some of the familiar voices like John Lewis and Dick Gregory and Andrew Young. But when it came to the archival material, I was really blown away by how much new stuff I found, uh, beginning with the Schomburg Library in Harlem, where I found the papers of L.D. Reddick, who was King's first biographer back in 1957, who went on to become the official archivist for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And I was the first person to have access to those boxes of materials, thousands of pages. And he was an archivist by training. So he had really documented everything. He traveled with MLK and with Coretta, just the three of them went to India together, and he took copious notes on that entire trip. And that's just one of the uh, many archival discoveries that I made in my time working on this book. And if you look at the outline of his life, you begin talking about his family history and go into quite a bit of detail about his parents and who they were and where they came from. Can you 
maybe just sketch out briefly how that shaped him. Absolutely. And it points to another archival discovery because I found the autobiography of Martin Luther King Sr. unpublished, only two copies known to exist in the world. And uh, the King Center didn't know it was out there. The King Children didn't know it was out there. And it shed a lot of new light on the family's origins. The King family, uh, at least the father's side of it, came from Stockbridge, Georgia, which is 20 miles south of Atlanta. We can't really trace the Kings back any earlier than 1870, which is fairly common for Black families in America, unfortunately, because their names were not recorded. Uh, They were viewed as property and not people worthy of complete identification. But the Kings uh, emerge in public records in the years after the Civil War, and they're working as sharecroppers around the Stockbridge area. And in 1910, when they show up in the census, uh, Martin Luther King's father is working on the farm with the rest of his siblings and with his parents in Stockbridge. And Martin Luther King Sr. is barely literate. You know, he goes to school, you know, maybe a couple of months out of the year. He's mostly helping on the farm. But the age of 12 decides to leave Stockbridge and make his way to Atlanta on his own and takes a job working as a, a as a fireman at a, at a railroad, loading pallets, and eventually teaches himself to read and write and becomes a preacher and marries into a well-to-do family of preachers in Atlanta and positions himself to be the pastor of of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And that's where he and his wife, Alberta King, make it possible for this extraordinary child, Martin Luther King Jr., to become who he becomes. A lot of it has to do with his father's decision to walk off that farm, but a lot of it also has to do with this environment that he creates for his son in Atlanta, where he's fairly privileged compared to a lot of his peers, a lot of his people of his generation. He's, you know, a lot of is expected of him because he's the preacher's son. And as he moved through his own education, it was interesting to see that dynamic in his personality. And how would you describe how that privilege shaped his educational journey? Young King ML, as he's called, or Little Mike, because he doesn't change his name until to Martin until later. Um, Little Mike is ferociously ambitious, even from an early age. He tries to sneak into kindergarten a year early along with his sister and gets away with it for a couple of months before the uh, teacher catches him talking about his fifth birthday and, and sends him home. And uh, even then, he's, you know, once he gets going in school, he skips a couple of grades. He enrolls at Morehouse at the age of 15 and um, has this incredible confidence, this swagger about him almost, even though he's, he's not only younger than all of his classmates, he's, he's fairly short and is mocked as his first nickname at school is Runt. This is not the Martin Luther King Jr. that we would become familiar with. And I love the fact that even as he's skipping grades and he's missing some fundamental skills, he's not a good speller. His math skills are really weak. Um, he nevertheless just keeps going and pushing himself to higher levels. He's learning what he needs to learn, always with an eye on the next step. Um, he graduates from Morehouse, moves on to Divinity School, and then to Boston University, really becoming um, this fierce intellectual, this theologian, even as he has some gaps in his in his learning and ends up, you know, plagiarizing his dissertation in part because of those gaps in his in his academic resume. And is it accurate that that only came to light decades later? Yes, that's right. It was discovered in, uh, I think, the 90s by some researchers at Stanford University. And it's during those grad school years that he meets Coretta Scott King. You present her in a way that her independence is evident to me anyway from the beginning. I teach at Antioch College where she attended. 
And so the Coretta Scott King Center is here too. So we talk a lot about her. And uh, how would you describe that relationship at its beginning? I think um, Coretta has never really received the due that she deserves. She, she still hasn't received the biography that she deserves. And I wanted to try to give her a much more complete and nuanced portrait. I think it's really important to note that the reason King falls for Coretta, and, and King dated a lot of women, he dated a lot of really intelligent, beautiful women. Why Coretta? I think it's because she'd been to Antioch. I think it's because she had an activist's resume already before they'd met. She had more experience in activism than he had at that point. And I think he was profoundly attracted to that, as well as her her intellect and her beauty. And, and I think that's one of the great ironies of the story is that it's the key to their relationship. And it's also a real sign of his weakness, because as much as he respects her and finds her activism attractive, he fails to really um, respect her abilities and give her the kind of jobs, give her the kind of um, responsibilities that she would like in the civil rights movement. And it's a sign of the way he treats women in general. Women are never given the kind of leadership roles in the movement that they would like. And that's in part because he and other Baptist preachers really uh, have their own set of biases and uh, overlook the contributions that women might make to the movement. And we see that as he moves to Montgomery and the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, women are central to that. And they really play an important role in launching his career. Can you talk about that pivotal moment and what that then leads to for him? Women absolutely deserve most of the credit for starting the Montgomery bus boycott. And I'm not just talking about Rosa Parks. It's Joanne Robinson and other women who are organizing the community long before Rosa Parks makes her defiant stand on the bus. And women have prepared the community for this moment. Women are organizing to make sure that people will stay off the buses. And it's King who's really just asked to serve as the spokesman. He's not the organizer. He's not the leader. He's the spokesman. And that says something to do with our, you know, our sexist society that a man is expected to stand up and, and serve as the symbol of the movement. And of course, King becomes much more than a spokesman. He becomes a true inspiration and a leader, but he fails to recognize the important role that women have played in getting him to that point and really fails to fully appreciate their potential. They're certainly active and, and they're very important in continuing to make the Montgomery bus boycott a success. But when it comes throughout his career, when the opportunity is presented to put women in positions of leadership, he fails. Mm -hmm. You're writing about events that many people are familiar with. And this is a podcast for Biographers International. And so we're particularly interested in the craft of writing biographies. What were your challenges in writing about these events that have been covered other places? How did you make decisions, what to cover, what to leave out? how to portray things. Well, you can relate to this too, as a biographer, you're buffeting about a little bit from other books. You know, what can I draw from them? What can I omit from them? I don't need to do what David Garrow and Taylor Branch did because they've done it already. What I need to do is present a much more intimate portrait of King. At times I felt like I was writing this book for an audience of people who had never heard of Martin Luther King. Let's just, you know, sometimes I felt like I, I wanted to approach King as if I were meeting him for the first time. How important is Montgomery in the evolution of King? Yes, I could write 500 pages. I could write 1,000 pages on Montgomery, on the bus boycott. There have been wonderful books written just about the bus boycott. How important is it to understanding how King 
becomes king and how he evolves as a human being. I think it's very, Montgomery is very important, more important than Selma or Birmingham, because those are important moments. But this is where King emerges as a leader, as, a, as an icon, as somebody who's, who's changing the course of his life. He, he wants to be a preacher for a little while, and then he wants to become a college professor and maybe a you know university president at some point. But things happen in Montgomery that make him realize that his path is about to change and that his sense of self is different than he imagined it. He is really blessed with leadership abilities and a chance to change the shape of the nation. That all happens on Montgomery. So how can I illustrate that? Well, I also find new materials in, in Montgomery. I found the uh, papers of the sociologists from Fisk University who were down there documenting the bus boycott as it was happening. And they were interviewing all the people who were walking to work instead of riding the bus. They were interviewing the members of the Klan. They were interviewing the police chief and the, and the bus company owner. And it's this great work of sociology and it's raw material. It's like being there as close as you can get without the actual, you know, audio tape or videotape. So I was lucky in that this was a key moment that deserved several chapters. And I had a lot of fresh material that would allow you to really feel like you were there with King. So that's the sweet spot. That's when I, you know, I would lean into Montgomery and I lean out a little bit from places like Birmingham and Selma, where the story's been told so well that you you may already feel familiar with it and I would argue are not as crucial to the King's evolution. A challenging aspect that's been covered in other places was, you talked a little bit about his treatment of women, but his relationships. And you know what you make clear is that there were some ongoing relationships with other women, and that's a challenging topic to address, but it's probably widely known. So what kind of decisions did you have to make about how you handled that? That was one of the most sensitive areas and the area that I was most concerned about because I, I wanted to be honest and I wanted to be upfront about his failures as a married man, and his infidelities. But I also wanted to make sure that I didn't overdo it and wallow in the salacious material. At the same time, on, on the third hand, I, I wanted to make clear that, it, that this is important, not just because it reveals King's flaws, but it's important because it provides the government with a, a weapon with which to attack King. And ultimately, that's the most important reason that his personal life is, uh, his sex life is, is relevant, because it is a key to the government's efforts to undermine the civil rights movement and to maintain the white power structure as it existed at the time. So I tried to balance all of those things. And, you know, it is important from a personal standpoint to note that Dorothy Cotton was his longtime mistress. And some people in the movement referred to her as his second wife. She was a very important part of his personal life. So I wanted to give her some of the, the, you know, character development that she deserves. I wanted to pay attention to her, but I also didn't want this book to turn into a, you know, a, a gossip sheet. But that link with the FBI, the narrative you create makes it so clear how almost obsessed J. Edgar Hoover was. And if he was obsessed, then the people who worked for him were too, with Martin Luther King and trying to disrupt what he was doing. And and I, I'm not saying that's necessarily new, but there's something about the way that it's presented. I mean, was there new information related to the FBI? Yeah, based on recently released wiretaps. Every year for the last three years, the government has released more transcripts of, of the wiretaps of King's phones. But this gets back to what I was saying before about 
almost trying to pretend that nobody had ever written a Martin Luther King book before. Because when I was researching and writing this, and I got to the point where King gives this great speech, you might've heard about it. It's called, I Have a Dream, uh, March on Washington, 1963. There's this moment of unbelievable hope for this country. And it's visceral. People all over the country are saying, we might be turning a corner here. Uh, literally, you know, white people are deciding to integrate their workplaces because of this. And at the same time, just days after that speech, the FBI produces a memo saying King is becoming too dangerous. We must view him now as the greatest threat to this country that's out there. So our government takes this moment of hope and turns on it and says, wait, a dramatic change in race relations in America, a sense that equality might truly be possible. Oh, no, no, no. We've got to put a stop to that. And the way to stop it is to crack down on Martin Luther King. And that's when the wiretaps, the surveillance increases. That's when they make us plan to send a compilation tape from his hotel rooms to his wife, hoping that it will break up his marriage, destroy his reputation. They begin planning a replacement. Uh, they're going to groom their own man, Charles Pierce, to be the, the new head of the civil rights movement. Or Samuel, Samuel Pierce. Pierce. Yeah. Samuel Pierce, sorry. As he uh, became known as Silent Sam. Silent Sam. Right, Reagan's secretary of HUD. Mm -hmm. So I'm still boiling. You know, I get angry just thinking about it. But as I was writing those chapters, I felt like, this is a story that needs to be told. And again, as I said earlier, looked at in a different light, given what we're living through today. This was a moment of opportunity for the country to turn a page and, and we didn't turn that page. How did it feel researching and writing now when it's different than what was happening in the 60s, but it does seem like we're in a backlash moment? Well, absolutely. I think that affected my approach and my feelings as I wrote the book, you know, living through the attacks in Charlottesville and living through the murder of George Floyd and so many other you know, horrible racial incidents that I can barely stand to recount them all. And knowing that this book will be read in that light, that you know, it may be seen as a, that King's movement failed because look where we are today. Look where I live in Chicago, as segregated now, if not more segregated than we were in the 60s with more violence, um, horrible in income inequality, horrible you know, incarceration rates that are racially skewed, right? So people may look at King's story and say, what happened? You know, um, We should look at it and say, what happened? But I guess the positive point I hope comes from this is that people might look at his words again and not just look at this homogenized version of him that we've spoon-fed our children, the I Have a Dream speech, and might actually you know, read his sermons and read his speeches again and see that he was warning us about all this and see that you know, he, was, he was not losing hope and that uh, he was urging us to keep fighting. I know when I was reading the, the latter years after Selma, when he's kind of searching for the next momentum, um, Los Angeles, Chicago, it revealed several things to me. One, I wasn't so much aware that the SCLC did not have a great organizational foundation that matched the gifts that the leader <laughs> had. And I know that's not the core of the book, but why do you think that that organization didn't develop as quickly as the momentum that it created? One of the things that's great about King is that he's constantly improvising. He's reacting to what's going on around the country and throwing himself into the middle of it, and he'll see what happens. And that's one of his great strengths, but it's also one of his great weaknesses because he doesn't have a long-term strategy. Uh, maybe he couldn't because all of this is 
unwinding in real time. And it's hard to predict where the movement's going to go. So he parachutes in to St. Augustine. He parachutes into Birmingham. He parachutes into Chicago in the hopes that, you know, I'm going to put out some fires and I'm going to start some other ones and we'll see what happens. We'll see what, how things look when I'm done. And that's not to excuse the fact that he should have had a longer range plan. There's a, there's a moment where I found this letter in the archives where the Ford Foundation writes to Andrew Young. Andrew Young is seeking a, an extension on a grant. And um, they say, well, we need to know your five-year plan. But it's almost laughable in the case of King, like five-year plan. He's barely got a five-week plan. Um, sometimes he didn't have a five-day plan. And maybe if he'd hired um, Ella Baker as executive director, things would have taken care of themselves. But these are preachers running this organization. They're used to being the man in charge. And I mean, man, literally, and all the sexism that it implies. They're not used to um, you know, organizations with five-year plans. They're used to giving a sermon and, and inspiring. And that's what he right. was really good at. Yeah. And I guess the, the reason that came to mind is because I think because of that, I do agree that some people might read the book and say they just didn't know what they were doing. And that's why it wasn't successful. In my view, they missed the larger story. And that's where the FBI and others come in is in terms of the level of obstruction as progress seemed possible. Um, can you talk a little bit about the holiday? And it's almost like you're working against that portrayal with this biography. Yeah, I think the holiday may have turned out to be, I don't want to say it turned out to be more more bad than good, because it's certainly, you know, an honor that he deserves. But it's let's just say it had serious unintended consequences in that it has taken the radicalism out of King. It has made him this safe figure who's all about peace and love and nonviolence and given us this, you know, grade school level lesson that we can all understand. And it has taken the ferocity out of King's story. It has taken the religiosity out of King's story. And it has taken the the, um, the nuance out of it. So we forget about the, the failures sometimes and, and how important those failures were to his success and the reason behind those failures. So just to pick up on what you were saying, you know, his advisors were saying to him, don't go to Chicago. It's a mistake. It's bad strategy. Uh, don't speak out on the Vietnam War. It's bad strategy. It's going to cost us funding. It's going to cost us support. It's going to mess up our relationships with key political figures. But King does these things anyway, because he knows it's the right thing to do morally. And even in Chicago, you could argue that he has a great chance of success in Chicago. He really calls the nation's attention down on Chicago and its racist housing, its uh, segregated schools. And he pressures the city to meet a set of demands that would really change the structure of the city profoundly. But what King doesn't know is that at the same time he's having these negotiations with Mayor Daley, Mayor Daley's on the phone with LBJ, with the president, and the president is on the phone with J. Edgar Hoover, and they're behind King's back mocking him as this sexual deviant, and that nobody's negotiating in good faith with King. King's pushing LBJ for a Fair Housing Act and getting nowhere because he's not playing in a game that's fair and square. The institutions, the whole force of the FBI is being brought to destroy his reputation. And the, and the media, the white news media, even though they're not running the stories about King's sex life, they all know about it. So he's not even getting fair media coverage. The, the game is entirely stacked against him. And yet he's still doing the things that he knows are politically unwise because he believes they're morally correct. Are there things that activists today can learn from this biography? 
I don't like it when people ask me about today or about the no. future because that's, <laughs> but I will, I will just say that to me, the big takeaway is that, and King said it over and over again, you can't lose hope. If you think things look hopeless now, imagine how they felt to King in the 60s. He's suffering from depression, anxiety. He's been stabbed in the chest. His home has been shot at. The entire FBI is obsessed with destroying him. And he's still going on. And he still believes that he can. He's not just doing this to hear his own voice. He's not just doing this to be a pain in the ass. He's doing this because he believes that he can make the country change, that he can make the world change. So if he can do that, I think we can at least do something more than tweet our opinions. I agree. Is there anything else you want us to know about this biography? Oh, man, I'm talking to bio, so I could go on all day uh, (laughs) about the process. Um, I would just love to say that it's great to have this community of biographers, and and I call on lots of them. Oh, that's the other thing. This would be good to talk about with you, because I know I called you during the process of writing this book. Um, I used to be afraid to call other writers, especially if they had covered some of the same turf. I was afraid they would feel territorial and that they would shun me or cause me to doubt myself. But I've gotten over that. And in this book, more than any other book, I had so much support from other biographers, other historians. People shared their archives. David Levering Lewis shared his his tapes of his interviews that he did in the 60s. David Garrow opened up his home to me. Peniel Joseph read my chapters on Stokely Carmichael and gave me feedback. Lerone Martin read some of my chapters. Um, I, I'm just so grateful to have other biographers. And I would just say like, and now, you know, my, my phone will ring after I say this, and I hope it does, that it's a beautiful community and, and it really is smart to call on past biographers, past writers, or to go through their archives if they're not still around. Yeah, because everybody has different pieces of, of the story that we can all benefit from. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is a uh, a marvelous biography. I, I enjoy reading it so much. This I teach U.S. history, and this period is one of my favorite periods to teach. And this just adds, I believe, a lot, in part because I think that young people in college today, they've received that watered-down version of, of Martin Luther King, and I think they'd be fascinated by the radical version that that you present in this biography. So I really, really appreciate the work you've done here. And so thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much. That was best-selling author Jonathan Igg speaking with fellow biographer Kevin Magruder about his latest book, King A Life, published in May 2023 by Farah Strauss and Garot. This interview was recorded via Zoom on July 11th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.